We've been talking all year about how our commitment to God, to his glory, to his cause, to his people is a response. Our commitment to God is a response to his commitment to us. That God committed all to our salvation, and so we commit everything that we are and everything that we have to Him, to His glory, to His cause, and to His people. And that's why this month and and last month we've been talking about being committed to being a biblical church. And what do we mean by that? We mean that we're committed to doing what we can find in the New Testament, what, what Jesus and His apostles taught the church to do and say and believe and how he calls us to to live. Even in the 21st century, we're striving to be a first century church. We're striving to do what Jesus and his apostles taught us to do. I don't know if I've told you this story or not. If if I have, stop, people always say, stop me if I've told you this. Well, don't stop me. I'm going to tell you anyway. But uh, there there was this mom, and I'm sure many of you parents can relate to this. This mom was trying to get her, her son up, ready for church on Sunday morning, and she kept waking him up, going in his room, knocking on his door, get up, son, it's time to get ready. You got to get ready. We got to go. We got to eat breakfast and brush your hair and brush your, t- come on, come on, we're going to be late. We're going to be late. We're going to be late. And he kept, no, mom, I don't want to roll over, pull the sheets over his head. And, you know, he just kept arguing. And he said, mom, listen, I don't want to go. She said, why don't you want to go? He said, because... You know, I don't, I don't like going and I don't like anybody there and I don't think they like me very much. And she said, I don't, I don't think that's true. Uh, but, but you, you have to go. You don't have a choice. You got to get up. You got to, you got to get ready. And he said, give me one good reason why I ought to go to church. She said, listen, I'll give you two good reasons. Number one, you're 30 years old. Uh, and, and number, and number two, you're the preacher. So you, you gotta, you gotta go. So yeah, last week, I made a comment that 99% of our life, 99% of our time is spent out there in the world, in school, at work, with our family, uh, mowing the grass, playing ball, working, whatever, whatever it is that we do with the other 99% of our time. Really, it's more like 99.5% of our time is spent somewhere else other than this particular assembly. If you come to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night, then it's more like, you know, 1.5% of your time. 1.5% of your week is spent here with these people in this room or in this building, assembled and and studying and praying and, and, and singing and worshiping. And so does that mean that, that this because it's such a small percentage of our life and our time, does it mean that it's somehow unimportant? Does it mean that that this is an insignificant part of what it is to be a Christian? Is this an insignificant part of our lives? I would argue that no. I would argue that this 0.5% or 1% or 1.5, whatever it is, this, this small portion of your week... This small portion of your life is one of the most important times of your whole week. 
one of the most important times of your whole life, that this one hour on Sunday mornings and coming together, that something spiritual, something transformative is happening here in you and with us, that this, even though it's a small percentage of our life, it is incredibly significant, maybe more significant than we often stop and realize sometimes. That if you've been a Christian for decades, and, and this one or two or three hours a week that you've spent with God's people, that the cumulative effect of those hours has shaped you more than you can possibly imagine. But unfortunately, in our culture, and for many of us, coming to church, and I don't even like putting it that way because we are the church, but coming to assemble together, it's become less and less important to a lot of people. A lot of people look at it and say, why? I mean, what's the big deal? Why should I? You know, I can worship God anywhere. I can pray anywhere and sing anywhere. And I can listen to sermons online. They're way better than Wes anyway. You know, I mean, and so you, you, you think, why, why is it? In fact, in fact, at one point in our country, an active, frequent church attender was defined as somebody who came to church three times a week. That, that was what people considered to be a frequent attender. Now, it's twice a month. So, what is it that makes this time and this coming together, this assembling, this gathering, this congregating, what is it that makes it so important and significant. I think there's a lot of things, and today especially, but over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the things that we do when we come together. And even though we're not together a lot, it what we do here and why we come together and who we are and what this is all about is incredibly significant. And, and not doing it is incredibly detrimental to our lives. So let's talk about why we need to restore, that's our theme this month, restore a commitment to gathering. And we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. So if you got your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 10. But again, let's, let's kind of, I, I think we ought to keep whatever passage we read or whatever verse we read, we've got to keep it in the context of the whole book. And David did a tremendous job this morning helping us to think about some of the things that Hebrews says. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians. We don't know who wrote it, and we don't really know where it was written to, so we don't know a whole lot about the audience or the author, other than they're very, very Jewish. And there there seems to be this temptation for these Jewish Christians to abandon Christianity and go back to Judaism. Maybe, perhaps, maybe these are Christians that are living in Jerusalem. And maybe years before they had gone through that initial persecution, you know, when Paul was persecuting Saul, was persecuting Christians, and they were breaking down doors and arresting people, plundering their property. And maybe they had gone through all of that, and they had been strong and faithful, but years and years and years and years and years and years had gone by. And, and the Jews were still going up to the temple and still offering sacrifices and there was still a priesthood and all of this seemed to just keep going on. And maybe these Christians are thinking, well, should I go back to that? 
I mean, I've lost, I've lost so much by following Jesus. My friends and my family don't want to have anything to do with me. My business has suffered. My livelihood has suffered. Uh, why can't I just go back to doing things like I used to keep going up to the temple? And, and maybe, maybe this whole Jesus thing isn't really, isn't really worth sticking to. And, and, and so this author writes, one of the the most beautiful and profound explanations of the gospel to say, listen, Jesus is better than everything else. Jesus is better. Jesus is supreme. Jesus and what he offers is better and more significant and more life-changing and more eternal than anything else. All of this other stuff is just a shadow that was pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus is better and what he offers is better and his is the only sacrifice that can really cleanse your conscience and make you clean. And what he offers, what he offers is the only thing of real substance. So stick with Jesus. Don't turn your back on Jesus. Don't abandon Jesus and his people. Be committed to Jesus because of Jesus' commitment to you and because of what Jesus offers. So with that in mind, look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Now, pay attention to these little phrases, since we have. Look in verse 19 and verse 21. You'll see this this phrase, since we have. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have what? Confidence. It's a good word, isn't it? Since we have confidence to do what? To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So, the, the author is just kind of recapping what he's already gone over. And if you go through and read Hebrews, you'll see what he's, he's talking about. He says, since we have this confidence to enter into the presence of God, into these holy places, not, not just like in the temple. You know, in the temple, there was the holy place and the holy of holies. It was separated by the curtain. And into that place, only one guy Every year, one person, the high priest, could go in there one time a year. But other than that, everybody, everybody was cut off from the most holy place. Nobody could go in it. Nobody could enter it because of sin. So there was this constant veil, this constant curtain that stood between God and people. But, but the Hebrew writer says, listen, but, but even that temple and that kind of picture of walking into the holy place, it was just a picture of what's in heaven. In the real presence of God, there is a holy place. And Jesus has made it possible for all of us, every single one of us, to be atoned for our sins, to be atoned for with his blood and by his flesh for us to enter into the actual presence of God. And so he says, now, since we have, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by his blood. The, the, the curtain was, was the pathway to God before, the pathway that was closed. And now the flesh of Jesus is the pathway to God that's not closed, it's, it's open to all of us. And now we have confidence because of what Jesus has done. Not, not only confidence, verse 21, and since we have, you see that? Since we have, since we have, a great priest over the house of God. And the, the author goes on and on in this book about what a great priest we have. 
that, that is always there for us, that he sympathizes with our weakness. Yet, even though he can sympathize with our weakness because he is a man like us, he's without sin. So unlike all of the other priests who had ever ministered, all of the other great high priests and all the other priests, this great priest, this better priest, is perfect, spotless, and he sympathizes. And he's unaffected by death. All of the other priests, I mean, their, their priesthood, their service, it comes to an end because they all die. But not this priest. And these priests, they keep piling up all the sacrifices year after year after year after year. But this priest offers one sacrifice once for all. And he says, since we have confidence and since we have a great priest, and church, listen, here's what we need to realize. As we talk about what should we do, you know, practical things. I mean, tell me what we should do. Tell me why we should do it. This what we have always precedes what we do. What we have and understanding what we have, when you read through the New Testament, pay attention to the way the apostles taught people. They said, here's what we have, and because of what we have, here's what we should do. This is what God has done, and because this is what God has done, this is what we should do. This is what Jesus has given you, and because this is what Jesus has given you, this is how you should live your life. But oftentimes, we try to persuade people in different ways, don't we? We should say, come to church. You know, son, get up, come to church, come to church, come to church, come to church. You have to come to church. Don't you know you're supposed to come to church? And we we try to persuade people with what they should do before they understand what they have. But But the way that the gospel works... <laughs> The way that the apostles try to persuade people to do certain things, because there's some things that this author wants his audience to understand and to do, and a certain way he wants them to live, primarily, don't abandon Jesus, and don't abandon Jesus' people. But before he gets to that, he wants to explain, here's what we have, and you need to understand what we have, because our commitment to God is a response to God's commitment to us. But if you don't understand God's commitment to us, if you don't understand what God through Jesus has done for us, if you don't understand what it is that you have in Jesus, then it's going to be impossible. Church, I'm telling you, it's impossible to persuade you to live a certain type of life. I mean, you can look like you are, but it's just superficial, isn't it? It's just skin deep. I mean, you can show up and you can, you know, not use bad words, not go out and do this, not go out... Christian living is so much deeper than that. And you can have this surface level obedience or you can have a transformation. And the transformation comes by understanding first what you have and then what you should do based on what you have. And so he goes through these since we have, since we have confidence, and since we have a priest, and since you understand that, then let us, that's the next phrases that he used, then let us, the let us follow the since we haves. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, let us, you see, since we have, let us, since we have priest, and since we have confidence, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure 
water. Church, I don't want to just persuade you come to church every week. I want to persuade you about what Jesus has done for you if you're in Christ. We, do, do we understand how forgiven we are? Some of us don't. Some of us don't understand how forgiven we are. And then we try to motivate ourselves to do better and be better with guilt and shame. That, that's not what the Hebrew writer is doing. He's not saying, hey, you ought to feel guilty you missed church. You ought to feel guilty you slept in last week. You ought to feel guilty. No, no. You want to persuade people to be the people of God? Then help them to understand what they have in Jesus. Help them to understand how forgiven they are and how pure they are. And then, and then say, let's draw near to God. I mean, that's what we have. This is we have, we have confidence and we have a great priest, which means let us draw near with God with full assurance of faith. In chapter four, he says, with confidence, we draw near to the throne of God. Do you know that that is what is yours in Christ Jesus? How good is that? That you can go to God in prayer and in praise. You, when you're in need, at any time, not just here, but you can go to God with confidence, knowing that His Son is your priest and has offered a sacrifice that has made you of good conscience, and that your body and your baptism has been washed with pure water, and you stand before God holy. And that place... That holy place that nobody could go, that for thousands of years Israelites had to let one man, one representative go into the holy place once a year on their behalf. You get to go in there, into a better place. And not shaking and trembling and, oh no, is God going to strike me dead? No, with confidence and full assurance of faith. That's the let us. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's embrace that. And then he says, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. All, all of you, the people to whom he's writing, and all of us, we made a confession, didn't we? And not just confession before we got baptized, like a prerequisite, yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. But what did Jesus say? He said, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess them before my Father in heaven. Sometimes it gets hard to confess Jesus, doesn't it? And to say, I'm with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. I follow him. I'm, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm a disciple of Christ. Sometimes that's hard. And in their context, it was incredibly hard because there were consequences for being disciples of Jesus. They had been resisting, the Hebrew writer says, not yet to the shedding of blood, but that very well may be coming soon. But don't let go. Hold fast to your confession of hope. Why? Because he's faithful. Confess him before men and he will confess you before his Father in heaven. That's the confidence we have in our priest. That's, that's why you got to know the since we haves before you talk about the let us. Why should I hold fast to my confession? Because he who promised is faithful. Why should I be, why should I not be ashamed of the name of Jesus? Because I know who Jesus is. 
And I know what he offers. And I know what he will do. And I know he's coming back. And I know what I will inherit in him. Why should I draw near to God with confidence? Because I know the sacrifice that's been made for me. And then the third let us, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You see, it's not just about your own personal relationship with God. It is that. Draw near to God with a pure, sincere, confident, assured heart. And hold fast to your personal confession that you're a follower of Jesus. But it's not just you by yourself. Since we have all of these promises in Jesus, then let us, then let us stir up one another. Let us consider and give thought to and think about how, how can I, how can I stir up and excite? The word almost means to aggravate somebody in a good way. Can you aggravate somebody in a good way? You excite them and stir them up, energize them to love and good works. And then he says, not, not neglecting or forsaking or abandoning. The ESV reads to meet together. That makes it sound like a verb, but really it's a noun. It's like our assembly. Not, not neglecting or forsaking or abandoning our assembly, as is the habit of some. And you could picture how in the first century, especially if it was in Jerusalem, how there were some people that said, you know, never mind. It's a whole lot easier to just be a Jew than to be a follower of Jesus. And in our context, it might be different. What's pulling us away? But there's certainly a lot of things pulling us away, isn't there? And it's really easy for us to forsake or abandon or neglect the assembly. But the writer says, because of all the promises you have in Jesus, then draw near to God and hold fast to your confession and, and think about how to stir up each other to what? To love and good works that you have an obligation to me, that you have an obligation to each other, that we all, that I have an obligation to you, that we all have an obligation to come together, to assemble, to gather, to congregate and excite each other. To do what? To love and to do good works. To go out there and be followers of Jesus. But you see, what happens in here is the aggravating, the exciting, the stirring each other up to say, I want to, I want to do more. I want to be more. I want to love better. I want to love my neighbor as myself. I want to love my wife and my kids or my husband or my parents or my nephews or my cousins or my enemies. I want to love them better. I want to do something good this week that reflects well on Jesus. It's this. It's this coming together that excites us to that. It's this assembling. It's this congregating. It's this gathering that should stir us up to go out into the world and love and do good works. He says, but... Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what, what's supposed to happen when God's people come together? Encouragement, 
and stirring up to love and good works. There's other things too, and we'll talk about those throughout the next few weeks. But, but church, listen, that's what's supposed to happen when we come together. He said, well, yeah, but I don't feel like anybody's stirring me up. I don't feel like I get excited to go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not really what the text says, is it? It says you. Because of what Jesus has done for you, then you consider how to stir up others to love and good works. Now, church, just imagine what would happen. Just just imagine. Think about what would happen. We have a 1,000 people that gather here almost every week. And not to mention the thousands of people that are gathered all over, the millions of Christians that are gathered all over the world. What, what would happen if every single one of us, if you and I said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to turn my back on my church family. In fact, all the more, I'm going to think about how I can come together with them and stir them up to love and good works how I can provoke them, how I can excite them to go out into the world and love better, do good works. Not not just the talk of it, but the reality of it. You know, we, we have a lot of people in our world that like to talk about doing good things, and they promote all kinds of good works and all kinds of good causes. And I mean, we have Twitter and Facebook and I don't know if you use Snapchat for that kind of thing or not, but we have Snapchat and Instagram. We have all of these avenues through which we can encourage people to be activists and promote certain good causes, and there's a lot of good to that. But one good deed, one act of loving kindness is worth more than all the talk in the world. What if, what if you could entice and stir up and excite someone else to go out there and do one act of loving kindness? What if you were stirred up and excited and motivated to go out there and do something selfless for the sake of Jesus, for the cause of Christ? I I like this word catalyst. I like that word catalyst. It means a person or a thing that causes change. And that's what the assembly should be. That's what you should be, a catalyst. That's what I should be, a catalyst. That's what our coming together should be, is a catalyst for change. That we aren't provoked and stirred up and excited to go out and love and do good stuff in the world for the name and the sake of Jesus because of our coming together on Sunday morning. That this gathering changes us. Not just because people come together and say, hey, go out and do something good. But because we come together and we're reminded of what we have in Jesus. Because it's that motivation. Since we have, let us. Since we have confidence. Since we have a great priest. Since we have Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Then let us be this kind of people. Let us be faithful to him. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. In fact, here's what I would say. The weekly Christian assembly has the potential to be the greatest catalyst for good in the world. Doesn't it? That's what it should be. And every single one of us play a part in that. By saying, what will I do today to stir up my family? 
You're together right now, and you can do this all kinds of ways, and, and you can call them tomorrow, or you can text them tomorrow, but, but you're here together in the flesh. Today, we're together, and let's use this gathering today. When, when we dismiss, and you shake hands, and you give each other hugs, figure out how you're going to encourage each other to go out and do good for the name of Jesus. And can you imagine what would happen? Can you imagine what would happen if 1,000 of us stirred each other up today to go out this week and be different people? Not, not just for some superficial love each other, hold hands, kumbaya type, you know, I mean, not, not something shallow, but because we know and are confident of who we are and what we have in Jesus. And that motivates us not just to do loving things, not just to do good works, but to stir each other up to love and good works, to encourage each other. And you've done a lot of that already, church. You, just, you showed up. And your presence encourages. And your presence stirs up each other. But let's consider how else we might do that. How else we might motivate someone else to go out this week and do good in the name of Jesus. This gathering, the gathering of Christian people all over the world every week has the potential to be the greatest catalyst for good in the world if we will embrace who we are and how Jesus calls us to live our lives and what Jesus calls us to do with and for each other. And maybe you, maybe you haven't yet embraced what Jesus has to offer. Maybe you haven't been buried with Jesus in baptism, but just listen, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whoever you've been with, Jesus wants to give you a home and a family and forgiveness and a future and an inheritance It's his offer of grace and mercy and love. We have to embrace that. And does it change the way we live? Absolutely. And thank God it changes the way that we live. Jesus doesn't just want to save us from the consequences of our sins. He wants to save us from the lifestyle of our sins. Every single one of us. And if you haven't yet embraced that, then we want to encourage you. Embrace that this morning. Be baptized into Jesus. Be forgiven. And begin this journey with him for the rest of your life. Maybe you've wandered away from that and you need to come back home. Or maybe you just need prayers. Let us prove to you what we say every week. We're in this together. We love you. And if there's any way we can help you, meet with the elders in the prayer room after service or come forward as we stand and sing.